Uh, Matthew chapter 16 this morning, we want to look at verses 21 through 23. We are at a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus Christ, as we will see once again in our study this morning. Matthew 16, 21 through 23, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. And let's ask the Lord to bless our study time together. Lord, again, we thank you for your word, your living word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us to see. And uh, Lord, I thank you for even a teacher such as myself that you have given to the church to uh, help us. Uh, ultimately, you're the teacher. The Holy Spirit's the ultimate teacher. But Lord, give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that's profitable for the listener this morning. So we commit our time of study to you now. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we note that the theme of Matthew is Christ the King, and we have worked our way down to chapters 14 through 16, and we're getting ready to finish out chapter 16. Uh, Christ began his ministry by offering the kingdom to Israel on the condition of repentance, as seen in Matthew 4:17. Christ then called his disciples to help him propagate the same message, chapter 10. Uh, the ultimate issue being presented is who Jesus was in fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy. Now, everything about Christ's life and ministry matched up with Old Testament prophecy. He had the right genealogy, necessary to be the Messiah. He had a forerunner in the person of John the Baptist, in perfect fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. He had the perfect moral qualifications in that no one could point to any sin in his life. Is that true for anyone else here this morning? J just asking. No. I mean, totally unique. Uh, no one could say, well, yeah, you're, oh, he breaks, breaks the Sabbath, they said, wrongfully. You know, they said things like that. But they really never had any sin on him. His teaching was so profound that no one could argue with it. I mean, he silenced his critics time after time after time. His miracles, both in scope and type, were unique to him, the Messiah, uniquely supernatural. For example, the disciples also were empowered to cast out demons and do miracles of healing, but they never did nature miracles. They never uh, calmed the storm. They never did these kinds of things, which were unique to Jesus, which are unique to God, as we see in Psalm 107 and so forth. Jesus' life matched up with prophecy in terms of exactly where he would be born. Bethlehem, Micah, chapter 5. At every point, the life of Jesus Christ matched up with the prophetic scriptures perfectly. Well, in spite of all the messianic evidence, the nation of Israel, led by her religious leaders, largely rejected the messianic claims of Jesus. Then came the final test, if you will, related to the ultimate issue in Christ's ministry up to this point. Jesus asked, Who do you say that I am? Everything in Christ's ministry is premised on this question. For two and a half years, the nature of Christ's ministry had been orchestrated by God to show that He was Messiah God. And sadly, the nation of Israel missed it. But Peter, speaking by God's revelation, answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was the right answer. And Jesus declared Peter blessed because of it. Furthermore, Jesus said he would build his church on this rock truth. And because of it, the realm of death, the gates of Hades, would not prevail against it. And also in this rock confession... Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom by which he would open the door to the kingdom to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and then later to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. At this point, the disciples properly understood the who. That is the person of Christ and who he is. But they did not yet understand the work of Christ related to the cross. Consequently, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ, lest the general populace break out into a misguided messianic fever that was political 
in nature. What neither the nation nor the disciples understood at this point was that Jesus, as the Christ, had to go to the cross. Christ and cross didn't go together in their minds. Yes, the kingdom had legitimately been offered, but in the wake of the nation's rejection of Christ as Messiah God, he now must go to the cross. And this, too, was part of God's sovereign plan. We pick it up, verse 21, in our study this morning. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, this verse here, verse 21, marks a definite transition in Christ's ministry. The language from that time indicates a shift or a beginning point, moving in a new direction. We see the very same exact language at the beginning of Christ's ministry in Matthew 4, 17. So note uh, the correspondence here. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then here in Matthew 16, 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and raised again. From that time in Matthew 4, 17, marked the inauguration of Christ's public ministry and his offer of the kingdom. From that time in Matthew 16, 21, marks a transition in which Christ is now moving steadily to the cross. The first phase primarily was public in terms of his ministry with some occasional private instruction. The second was primarily private with some occasional public instruction. That's the phase that we're in now. The kingdom ministry was largely public. The cross ministry, if you will, was largely private. Well, up to this time, Christ had at various points made allusions to his coming death. But it was not clear. Now he speaks directly to the issue. D.A. Carson says, This is not the first time he alludes to his death, but it is the first time he discusses it openly with his disciples. When Jesus says, when it, or when it says, Jesus began to show... The word show means to point out, to explain, or to reveal. At this point, Christ is spelling it out for his disciples very clearly. This was very clear and very precise prophecy. Note Jesus said, this must happen. This too was part of God's sovereign plan that must be fulfilled. This too was part of the prophetic scriptures which must be fulfilled as seen, for example, in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and Daniel 9.26 and Zechariah 12.10 and 13.7 and so forth. One commentator says, This must came thundering out of eternity. It was the essential, unalterable plan of God set in motion before the foundation of the world. Jesus here makes three specific points in terms of what must come to pass. First, he says he must go up to Jerusalem, where this must take place. This is interesting, because you understand, up to this point, most of Jesus' ministry had taken place up north, in Galilee. But now the emphasis shifts, and the emphasis will now be on Jerusalem. This must happen in Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. This had to take place in Jerusalem. This is interesting because I believe it ties back to Genesis 22. You see, back in Genesis 22, God told Abraham to go and offer up his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. He told him to go to a specific place. And Isaac in the story is a type of Christ 
who would be offered up by his father. Well, in the story, when Isaac commented, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham looked at him. (laughs) I'm sure he did. But he didn't say what we might expect to say, You, my son, are the offering. (laughs) No, he said instead, My son, God will himself provide the lamb. That really was a prophetic statement that ultimately had Christ in view in terms of the typology. Many believe this is what Christ was referring to in John 8, 56, when he said, quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. But note this connection. Mount Moriah includes the edge of Jerusalem, precisely where Jesus was crucified. Thus, this is where Jesus the Christ must be killed, as prophetically typified back in Genesis 22. Uh, See the map here, the uh, picture here? Here's uh, the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah. It's on that mount here where Jesus Christ was crucified, fulfilling the typology that we find back in Genesis 22. Moriah, according to 2 Chronicles 3.1, was the location of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now you understand the temple was the God-ordained place of sacrifice for God's people in the Old Testament. In Israel. Thus it was here that Christ must suffer, be killed, and rise again. In Deuteronomy, 21 times God instructs that the place of sacrifice must be only in the place that He chooses. It's a major emphasis in Deuteronomy. Not only must Christ go to Jerusalem, but there he must suffer many things from the elders. Notice who he's going to get this is coming from. From the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. He must suffer many things from them and be killed. Now this prophecy is very clear that the instigators of Christ's suffering and death would be the religious leaders in Israel. You know, the most holy people in the land. Not. But this is exactly what happened. There's overlap here, but the elders were the lay leaders among the various clans of Israel. The chief priests were largely made up of Sadducees who were in charge of the temple, essentially. And the scribes were very closely tied to the Pharisees. Many of them were Pharisees, who were the theological lawyers of the day. I mean, they were the experts in the law. If anybody knew the Bible, they did. It was representatives from these three groups of spiritual leaders who made up the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court in the land of Israel. What is in view represents the official rejection of Jesus on the part of their official leadership, on the part of their judicial leadership. Jerusalem was the capital. And these categories of spiritual leaders represented the highest judicial ruling in the land. The king is going to be rejected formally and officially by Israel. And that's what happened. We read later on in Matthew 27, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Who's stirring the crowds up? Yeah, the crowd's calling for his crucifixion, but who's stirring them up? It's the religious leaders. In the scriptures, the builders are seen as the spiritual leaders that God uses to build his program. Psalm 118 specifically says it would be the builders who would reject Jesus, who in reality is the chief cornerstone of what God is building. Very important prophecy, Psalm 118. Help. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected. Notice that. The builders. Who's the builders? The spiritual leaders. The builders rejected. And he has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. 
Jesus quoted this psalm as applying to himself, as did Peter and Paul. Thus, Christ, Christ was the messianic stone that was rejected by the builders, the religious leaders in Israel. This is in perfect fulfillment of what Jesus said. In Matthew 23, Jesus pronounced judgment on the scribes and the Pharisees in a series of woe judgments all the way through Matthew 23. Woe, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he says at the end of that chapter, Matthew 23, 38, 39, See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till, till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The sense is that until the leaders of Israel come to repentance and finally see Jesus as the Messiah, they would see him no more. Jesus' prophecy that he would suffer and die at the hands of these key religious leaders proved to be 100% true. That's exactly how it went down. But note that while it had to happen this way, the people involved were responsible for their own actions. Once again, we see that tension between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Both are true in a way we cannot completely figure out, but we see this emphasis all the way through on the sovereignty of God and yet human responsibility. Acts 2.23, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. But note, it was according to God's determined purpose. Acts 4.27.28, Truly against the holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. God sovereignly controlling everything. Now, human responsibility does not take away from the truth of God's sovereignty, and God's sovereignty does not take away from the truth of human responsibility. Both are true. These things must happen to Jesus, and yet humanity, in terms of their actions, are personally accountable and responsible. Implied in verse 21 is that Christ would not be commonly stoned to death, but rather killed as a result of a judicial process instigated by these spiritual leaders representing the Supreme Court. Thus, it would be a judicial murder, so to speak, which it was. But note there was a a third must here. Not only must he go up to Jerusalem, uh, not only must he suffer and die, but he must also be raised the third day. Note again this very precise detail. He was to rise not on the second day, not on the fourth day, but on the third day. While Peter and undoubtedly all the disciples clearly heard and got the point about Christ being killed, it's almost like they didn't hear that last part about the resurrection. It's like it got swallowed up by what Christ had said just before concerning his suffering and death, which is specifically what Peter took issue with. The truth of the Messiah's death and resurrection was found in the Old Testament. Albeit, the details were not clear. But the implication is clearly there. For example, Psalm 1610, You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. In Matthew 12, 39 through 40, and again in Matthew 16, 4, Jesus alluded to the truth of his coming resurrection when he spoke of the sign of the prophet Jonah, saying, quote, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, okay, what then? Okay, he's, he's three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. What happens then? Well, he hadn't made that totally clear until now. Now with clarity, he plainly tells the disciples that he would be raised the third day. That's what then. There's a resurrection coming, guys. I'm going to be raised the third day. Hear the end of the story. Verse 22. Peter didn't get it. He didn't listen to the end of the story. He missed that point. 
Verse 22, Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. And I think Peter, you know, the big fisherman, probably said it was some robust, right? Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. I think Peter responded in a very emotional way and not an irrational manner. His very behavior contradicts what he has just said about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, think about this. Who in their right mind takes the Son of the living God aside and begins to rebuke him? What kind of a Son of God do you have? Who in their right mind is so sure of their own ideas that they forcefully try to correct the Son of the living God? Peter was definitely not thinking consistently or acting in a consistent manner with what he has just confessed. By the way, this is what Christians do when they act contrary to the truth that they have come to know. Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. And then I walk in disobedience to that truth. We're doing what Peter did. It's a contradiction to what you have just confessed. Peter meant well, by the way. He was well-intentioned, thinking this idea of Christ suffering and dying was completely contrary to his idea of a powerful, victorious Christ. I mean, you see power all over that, don't you? You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. I'm, I'm going to suffer and die. What? Didn't you hear what I just said, Jesus? Far, far be it from you. That, that's not going to happen. It just didn't make sense to him. Now, we can understand why Christ commanded his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. There were great gaps in their understanding yet at this point. As I say, they had just enough knowledge to be dangerous. And when you have just enough knowledge to be dangerous, you know what you should do? Shut up. It's really what Jesus told them back in verse 20. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. You guys, you got just enough knowledge to be dangerous. But humanly speaking, humanly speaking, it's the only way we can speak, by the way, unless we're speaking by inspiration. But humanly speaking, we can understand why Peter reacted this way, right? I mean, I can understand that. John the Baptist had said the kingdom was at hand. Jesus had said, the kingdom is at hand. The disciples had preached, the kingdom is at hand. So the idea of suffering and death just didn't fit this kingdom is at hand paradigm. Of course, of course, looking back now as we study it, of course, we see that he failed to realize that the truth of the kingdom, as shared by Christ in the parables has now been put on hold. There's a postponement in the kingdom program. Add to this the emphasis among the Jews that Jesus, or that the the Messiah, was to be a reigning Messiah. Yes, the Jews did also see the idea of a suffering Messiah, but they couldn't see them in the same person. Had a rainy Messiah, had a suffering Messiah, but two different Messiahs. They they couldn't put them together in one person. That didn't make any sense to them. So they saw the reality of a suffering Messiah as being a different person from the reigning Messiah. And of course, the reigning Messiah is the one that got all the attention and the one they focused on and hoped for. And you can see why. I mean, great prophecies like Jeremiah 25 or 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Yeah, that's the Messiah we're talking about. And here, Jesus, the kingdom is at hand. The disciples, the kingdom's at hand. Even when the angel Gabriel broke the news to Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah. He did it in this way. Here's how the announcement went. Luke 1, 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. He'll be great. Be called the son of the highest. 
The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So, we get it, right? This reigning concept comes right out of the scriptures. And it was championed by the Jews. And it was true. This is what the scriptures prophesied. The Messiah would come and reign. They got that point. Thus they did not see the truth of the cross. After Israel's rejection of the Christ, a kingdom delay was now in process and is to this very day. It was no longer at hand, but rather was postponed, which is the major point of the kingdom insight given in the parables in Matthew 13. And in that void comes the truth of the cross. Not to mention the interim church age where we live today. But note something else here. Even though Peter has just confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, yet Peter felt comfortable enough with Jesus to approach him in this manner. That's pretty amazing. I mean, Christ was very gracious. He didn't say, oh, done with you, Peter. Up in smoke. No, no, that's not how Jesus operated. He was very gracious with these slow disciples. He was gracious and yet commanding, but indeed, to be sure, very gracious and approachable. I think there's there's a great lesson here in terms of shepherding. If Jesus had carried himself in a threatening and austere manner, Peter would never have dared to address Christ like this. I mean, Jesus was Lord over all, and yet meek and mild. This says something about the gentle and humble in heart demeanor of Christ. He was approachable. Of course, that doesn't excuse the brashness, presumptuousness, and arrogance on the part of Peter. But it does tell us something about the gracious spirit of Jesus. And his graciousness in working with us. And after all, just remember, he's just told Peter, you're the rock on... Really, I think he's talking about his confession. uh, But Peter, this rock I I will build my church on. The confession that Peter has just made. But it says here, Peter began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. To rebuke means to scold in a commanding manner. It's suddenly like Peter forgot who the Lord was. I mean, Peter, albeit unwittingly, was really trying to play God in telling Jesus how it's going to be. I mean, God the Father is in control. Jesus is the servant of God the Father, not of Peter. Peter, in taking Jesus aside, apparently intended for this to be a piece of private counsel, evidently thinking the Lord has misspoken. By the way, uh, no Lord is a misnomer. It's a contradiction in terms. If we really recognize as Jesus, Lord, the only proper response is, yes, Lord. We're always out of line when we say, no, Lord. Very literally, what Peter said was, mercy to you, Lord, this shall not be to you. Not realizing this was part of God's sovereign plan, Peter calls on God to mercifully intervene, as it were, and not allow it to happen. John Phillips makes this observation. The man who triumphed gloriously when faced with the deity of Christ fell flat on his face when faced with the death of Christ. Godhead was possible to understand. Golgotha, the hill of the skull, was impossible. When Peter says, this shall not happen to you, he flatly contradicts what the Lord has just said. He was totally clueless about the plan of God concerning the Christ. And yet very arrogantly speaks his mind like he really knows what he's talking about. Know anyone else who ever does that? Do not point. But it's a pretty common tendency for us as humans. John MacArthur says, The believer who complains about his sufferings and trials and asks, Why me, Lord? Shares in Peter's presumption. It's easy to accept God's blessings, but not his testings. It's easy to accept prosperity and health as part of God's plan for us, but not hardship and sickness. 
When joy comes to us, that seems to be our proper lot as a child of God. But when sorrow comes, we are inclined to doubt our Heavenly Father's wisdom and love. Verse 23. But he turned to Peter. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The Lord showing here that he is indeed the Lord immediately put Peter in his place. And at this point, that was a very low place. The sense is that Jesus abruptly cut Peter off and rebuked him. This is seen in verse 22 where it says Peter began to rebuke him. He began, but he didn't get far. Jesus turned and addressed Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. Now, that had to be jarring. I mean, Jesus had just bolstered Peter, commending him on his inspired confession. Jesus had just bolstered Peter, telling him that he would build his church on his great confession. And that to him were entrusted the keys to the kingdom. Now this? That had to be jarring. Get behind me, Satan shows that Jesus at this point saw Peter as representing Satan. In effect, at this moment, he was the mouthpiece of Satan. The word Satan means adversary. That's literally what it means. And at this point, Peter had unwittingly become the representative or the spokesman for the adversary, Satan. Now, that is the last place in the world that a child of God ever wants to be. But it can happen. It happened to Peter... And it can happen to you or me as well. We can mean well and do wrong. We can be sincere and yet sincerely wrong if we are following our own heart instead of God's truth. Everybody out here in the world wants to follow their heart. Yeah, just follow your heart to hell. I mean, that will not lead you into the path of God. I mean, Peter's in line with Satan here following his heart. That's what we hear all the time. Worldly wisdom. Just follow your heart. You mean that heart that's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Follow that one? When Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, it's very similar to when Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil, directly trying to tempt him, said this in Matthew 4.10. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. You see, Satan had offered Christ the kingdom without the cross. And now in the same vein, Peter is unwittingly telling Christ, This shall not happen to him. Not realizing the spirit in which he was speaking. Jesus said to Peter, You are an offense to me. The word offense is the Greek word scandalon, meaning stumbling block. Jesus had named Peter with the name Peter, meaning stone. But now he is being a different kind of stone, a stumbling stone. At this point, the idea of Jesus being a suffering, dying Messiah resulted in Peter being a would-be stumbling block to Jesus, which, of course, is not possible but in truth became a stumbling block to the Jews going forward. Here's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. There is the same language to the Greeks' foolishness. The Jews to this very day, as a people generally, continue to stumble over the truth of Christ's crucifixion. They just don't see this reality as applying to the Christ. To this day, they fail to see the truth of Isaiah 53, even though it's right there in their Hebrew Bible as plain as day. You see, the rabbis in Israel generally forbid their people from reading Isaiah 53. They leave off one week in the synagogue at chapter 52, and they pick up the next week at chapter 54. It's just kind of the great omission all the time. It's just too dangerous. 
They may read Isaiah 52 and they may read Isaiah 54, but not Isaiah 53. Some Christians in Jerusalem a while back put out hundreds of posters with a different verse from Isaiah 53 every few days, always ending with this question. Who is the prophet speaking about? Zvi was a converted Jew who lived in Jerusalem for many years. And he constantly witnessed to the Jews in all sorts of ways. And one day, as he was in a conversation, uh, they, they were kind of getting, you know, he would be tactful and winsome about it and take a while to get, you know, to where he was really wanting to go as far as he tried to bring him in. And uh, somebody kind of caught on to him and says, you're talking about this man. And, and that's the, the language. They, they don't name Jesus. They don't want to ever use his name. So they call, call him this man. And in response, Zvi simply opened up his Hebrew Bible and in the Hebrew read Isaiah 53 to them. And he said, see, see, we told you, you're, you're representing this man. He said, it's Isaiah 53. It's not, read, open your Hebrew Bible. They were astounded. This is in our Bibles about this man? Yeah, it's right there in Isaiah chapter 53. And what do we see? I mean, been there all along. I mean... Since 700 years before the time of Christ, since the time of the prophet Isaiah, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is the prophet speaking about? Well, we know. This is the offense of the cross, which is still to this very day a stumbling block to the Jews. Peter initially stumbled over it and tried to use it as a stumbling block to prevent Christ from going to the cross. William Hendrickson says... Peter, allowing himself to be influenced by Satan, was speaking from the foolish human point of view. He did not realize that he was asking for his own eternal damnation. Indeed. And then Jesus said, For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Note the correlation between get behind me, Satan, and the things of men. They go together in our natural way of thinking, we line up more with Satan than we do God. Peter, in his humanness at this point, was not in alignment with God's mind. Today, there is such an emphasis on subjective thinking. People go by their feelings and think that because it is their feelings, it must be true. You see, emotions and feelings become the arbiter of what is true for people. They say foolish things like, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. As if a person can somehow craft their own truth. It's utter folly. Truth is truth. If I fall off a 12-story building, I'll die. You fall off a 12-story building, you'll die. It's true for all of us, right? You say, well, I'll fall off and show you. I have my own truth. Go ahead. You'll find that truth is truth. Peter was going by his feelings, by his emotions, by his human thinking. But in reality, it aligned with Satan's message. And it's good to always remind ourselves, God's ways are not our ways. Very humbling. But Isaiah is very clear. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We can never figure out God. We've got three-pound brains. We know God only by way of His revelation. He must reveal Himself to us. He must reveal His plan. Instead of running off with our own ideas and feelings, we need to come back to God and His revelation. Now, Jesus had just revealed that He would build His church and that the realm of death would not prevail against it. That's what He just said. 
Certainly this meant first and foremost that death would not prevail over the Christ, the one who builds his church. Especially when you tie in, he said, I'm going to rise the third day. Peter should have been listening more closely to the last part about Christ being raised the third day. But alas, at this point, he was mindful of the things of men. You know, thinking only in terms of self-preservation. Self-oriented preservation and the way of the cross are mutually exclusive. Proverbs is very clear. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Seems right. Worldly wisdom to the world seems wise. It's a way of death. It's an amazing reality that God has given humanity the ability to reason on a level that no other creature has. Take frogs, for example. When's the last time you had a meaningful conversation with a frog? Please do not confess that you have. But anyway, we as humans have the ability to reason about the things of God because we have been created in the image of God. It's an amazing reality. In Isaiah 1.18, God says, come now. He invites, come now. Let us reason together. But what does this mean? It doesn't mean that we are invited to come to God with our brilliant ideas as if our head and God's head, our two heads together are better than one. No, it doesn't work that way. God is saying this. He wants us to align our reasoning with his revelation. He wants us to think his thoughts after him. He wants us to get on his page. And God wants us to see that this is a very reasonable thing to do. God's way is to first reveal, by way of prophecy, what he is going to do, and then prove himself in bringing it to pass. And we should listen very carefully to the prophetic word of God. Amos 3, 7, surely the Lord God does what? Nothing. Unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Every major thing that God has done in history... Since the time of Israel, he has prophesied that he's going to do it. And then he brings it to pass. And Jesus, the ultimate prophet, is making specific prophecies about his coming death and resurrection at this point. But this is God's pattern. We see this very clearly in the life and ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. God told us the Messiah was coming. Guess what? He came. The Messiah came, and upon being rejected, he said he would die and rise again. On the third day. And he did. This is the pattern. Just as sure as everything God prophesied concerning the first coming of Christ was fulfilled to the letter. Just as sure will everything be fulfilled in relationship to his second coming. God predicts it and then invariably brings it to pass. What he calls us to do is to believe him. Not believe in ourselves, but believe him and his revelation. To be on his page. Reasoning together with God is to line up with His revelation. Don't listen to people. They don't know anything, including me. I don't have a clue. People don't know anything about the future. God alone knows the future. Fulfilling prophecy is His glory, and He shares this with no one else, as He says in Isaiah 42. Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's the centerpiece of it all. It's amazing how the same person can be, on the one hand, speaking for God profound truth, and then turn right around and be a mouthpiece for Satan. Same person. That was Peter's experience. And if we're honest, it also happens to us more than we would like to admit. Constantly, we have to keep ourselves in check. And what's coming out of our mouths, is this really lining up with God's truth, or is this off track? Is what I'm saying about God just my thoughts, or does it properly line up with God's revealed thoughts? Be very sure that if it's just our thoughts, then it's out of line with God and Satan is behind it. Someone wrote, if such a thing could happen to Peter, it can happen to any believer. The same Christian who extols the plan of God can be lured into extolling the plan of Satan. 
when he follows his own wisdom instead of the spirits, the same one who has strongly taken the side of God can find himself unwittingly on the side of Satan. This is the great issue, my friends, in the last days, as Paul spells out in 2 Timothy. There he says, a time will come when professing Christians will no longer endure sound doctrine, but rather will heap up for themselves self-oriented teachers who cater to their own desires. This is last day's apostasy that prefers human thinking over God's revelation. It becomes man-centered instead of God-oriented in perspective. And this is why discernment and biblical thinking is so very critical. The question is raised, was raised to John MacArthur, what is the greatest threat to the church today? What might your answer be? What is the greatest threat to the church? Oh, we got swirling. What's the greatest threat to the church today? What's your answer? Well, John MacArthur answered, a lack of discernment. Let that soak in. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says we are to examine everything carefully. How do we do that? Well, we must have a solid grip on sound doctrine and examine everything through the grid of a proper understanding of Scripture. Proper discernment is biblical discernment involving rightly dividing and rightly applying the word. This is biblical wisdom and it's sorely lacking. Uh, Spurgeon said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. You know, the closer the deception is to the truth, the better the deception. We have to be very discerning. We need to set our mind on God's interest, on God's program, on God's will, on God's revelation, and not on man's. Many professing Christians don't know the word well. And therefore, they go by emotions. We've got whole movements that do this. They think I'm crazy because I haven't had their experience. Let's just talk Bible, shall we? Let's talk doctrine. They don't go by the word. They go by emotions, experiences, and feelings. And they end up being mindful of the things of men instead of the things of God. They end up being the mouthpiece for Satan instead of God. The Bible from the very beginning presents two different ways when it comes to the things of God. You, you remember them way back in Genesis, Cain and Abel, right? Uh, Cain brought an offering to God on his own terms, according to his own thinking, and God rejected it. Abel came in accordance with God's terms, according to God's revelation, and he was accepted. By the way, Peter did come around after the resurrection, Peter put it all together. In 2 Peter, four times he speaks of Christ as Lord and Savior. For Peter, those two were linked. It is Peter who tells us we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, of Christ. The Christ, who is the Son of the living God, redeemed us with his precious blood. Note he clearly came to see the work of Christ as well as the person of Christ. Well, in the five minutes I have left, let me make some application, okay? I have 15 minutes worth of application, but I'll do it in five minutes. This section in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 23, tells the whole gospel story that we need to know. It emphasizes the person of Christ as well as the work of Christ. Both are essential in knowing the knowledge of the truth by which we must be saved. Now, some people get the person of Christ, who he is as the Christ, the Son of the living God, at least on paper, they get this right. A lot of the mainliners, Roman Catholicism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They get the person of Christ right, at least on paper but they fail to properly understand the finished work of Christ on the cross as confirmed by the resurrection. People who believe in baptismal regeneration, for example, are in this category. Others get the work of Christ right, but they fail to properly emphasize the person of Christ. Many professing evangelicals are in this camp. 
these wrongfully jump right to the cross work of Christ and glibly pass over his person. I want to champion both because both, I contend, are essential in a full and accurate presentation of the gospel. In fact, in fact, the work of Christ builds on the truth of the person of Christ. The death of Christ builds on the truth of who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is the order of emphasis in the Gospels. Not only here in Matthew, but certainly in John. The first half of Matthew builds the truth of who Jesus is and leads to the all-important question, who do you say that I am? This is answered with Peter's great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Only then does Christ build with precision upon this. His person is the foundational truth. Everything builds on this. Building on this, a proper understanding of who Christ is. Jesus then reveals his coming cross work. And the reminder of the book, the remainder of the book, emphasizes this truth. It's a package. And the full gospel includes both the person as well as the work of Christ. And this, for me, is a hill to die on. We see the person of Christ, the God-man. I mean, up to this point, he's two and a half years into his ministry. He had been emphasizing the cross up to this point, been emphasizing the kingdom. Who he is, the God-Messiah. The person of Christ. And then the work of Christ builds on that. The work of Christ is all sufficient because of who he is. And then there's the personal application. He must be my Lord and my God. Last page. Some slides. Jesus is fully God, holy God. He represents us. He came to earth as a man. He's the God-man. And as such, he's the perfect mediator. The perfect go-between. And we have to accept him for who he is as Lord and Savior. One more slide. I will come. That's the prophecies of the Old Testament. It happened. I will die. It happened. I will resurrect. It happened. I will be back. Get ready. He's coming. Get ready. Live ready. Jesus is Lord and he is Savior. The only question that remains is, is he your personal Lord and Savior? If you want to talk, I'm up front afterwards. Us elders will be up here. Let's stand and have our closing song.